How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Alan Mitchell and Jonathan Willis joining us today. John, how are you, bud? Doing well. Together again. This is getting to be a regular thing. You know, it's been, what is this, three weeks? In, or it feels like six weeks, but I think it's three. <laughs> well, you can't go by how it feels because you put you and me together in a room and it's, uh, you know, minutes become hours, hours become days. It's the seven-day war every time. Uh, we're, we're, we have a great guest today, uh, Ryan Rashog, TSN Edmonton Bureau reporter, and talk to Ryan about all kinds of things. Uh, Edmonton is a site option and uh, free agents and that sort of thing. But let's bring him in right now. Uh, I don't know if we're getting uh, reporter Rashog or civilian Rashog, but let's check. Ryan Rashog, how are you, man? <laughs> I'm good. I was told this was a work call. So you've got, I'm, I'm firmly wearing the TSN working hat today, fellas. Okay, so no guitar music or anything like that. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, that's, we'll play it straight up. Uh, let's start here. You you have been at the, the front edge here of uh, reporting on, on the relationship between the Oilers, the NHL, and uh, the, the government of Alberta and the cities involved uh, as well. So let's start with that because I think it's top of mind for everybody uh where are we how are things going along I know uh last time you talked about this uh everybody's you know working towards a goal but there are a couple of major things and some others involved as well that need to be you know uh filtered out a little bit and and as we continue down this road figure it out yeah I think um it feels kind of mind-numbing to try and consider all of the things that they must have to try and figure out right now. Beyond just logistics of arenas and dressing rooms and ice pads and all of those things, there's a, a safety component of this that uh, is, is quite the mountain to tackle. And so it's, it's incumbent on the Oilers to be working closely with Alberta Health to try and figure out what the pathway is to doing this safely. And that, there's a number of fronts that come from that. I mean, testing is obviously a really big one. I think the idea is if you're safely going to have all these players competing against one another every day in the environment we're in, you're going to have to test them all almost every day, if not more, uh, well, if not every other day. So we wait to find out what the testing front looks like. Um, and then things like player safety and, and what ifs and what if players test positive after competition begins? What if a player is found to have been outside the bubble of safety? What, there are just so many what ifs. And so the conversation is ongoing where they're trying to check off all of these boxes of what they need to know. And so the latest iteration was the Oilers checking some of their boxes and sending it back to the province and Alberta Health, and then conversations happening this week where they dig in on some of the bigger issues. 
So you mentioned um, players leaving the the bubble of safety, and I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent here, but uh, Devin Dubnik, for one, the other day was talking about, you know, it's not really desirable for a player to, to leave their family and go into quarantine for a length of time, and I can't imagine he's the only one who feels that way. Uh, you obviously talk to players quite a bit. From a practical perspective, do you think a really strict quarantine is is plausible, especially if players are playing in a hub city as opposed to, you know, their their home city? It's it's going to have to be if it, if it if it's going to happen in Alberta. I mean, I can't speak for what other health authorities um, might be looking for, whether it's in the United States or other provinces. But I think a big part of the pitch is and has to be um, a super bubble, you know, a bubble of safety, where once you're in there, you have to be very conscientious about any access to anybody that's not in that bubble. And I think you know this this comes down to you know, the NHL and these teams being able to work with these health authorities and convince them is the wrong thing to say, but but work with them to an agreement where everybody can agree that, yes, that's an acceptable level of safety. Because as much as, you know, the Premier may want hockey to come, and my sense from his comments is that he would love to, for Edmonton to, to be able to host, as much as people might want this to happen, you have to deal in what-ifs, and you have to try and stay realistic and not be not catastrophize, but be very realistic about it. So let's go down that path for a minute about what if, guys. What if three days into competition, a member of the Calgary Flames tests positive for COVID at 10 a.m. And his team is supposed to face off that night at 7.30. Let's say two players do. So... Or, or let's just go back to the scenario where one player does. What is the protocol that's in place? So you remove that player and you test everybody on the team. The hope is they'll have rapid response tests where you can get back right away with an acceptable margin for error because all of this testing comes with the margin of error. So now you test all these players. The rest of the team is clear. Staff is clear. You throw them out on the ice. Right? If you're the Edmonton Oilers and you're playing the Calgary Flames that night, you're standing out on the ice looking across at a team where one of their players has tested positive for COVID-19 and you know was with them as early as recently as this morning. Does there come a point in time where you're going, what are we doing here? Like, you know, And that's where you have to be able to rely on the, the testing, that it's thorough enough and that it's, that it's consistent enough. And you have to rely on the work that's been done between the health authority, PA, the league, and that you are, in fact, going to be safe. But that is a very realistic scenario. Ryan, do you... Um, I get the sense that that we'll see uh, other leagues and other uh, sports open long before, and I'm not just talking about soccer, long before hockey yeah. just because of the timeline. Do you, In your own mind, do you have a timeline that fits or one that you think, based on who you've talked to, uh, works lines up with how the NHL is uh, heading and thinking? Yeah, so <clears throat> a couple of points. One, I think that the timeline for the NHL, um, they really benefit from other sports uh, going ahead and doing what they're doing, whether it's the UFC trying what it tried the other night, whether it's soccer overseas, whether it's Major League Baseball. Um, you know, whatever else is happening before them is an opportunity for them to evaluate and learn. And I would imagine they're going to be watching it very closely to see how a number of different things are handled. All these things we've talked about, positive tests and testing and all that kind of stuff. So they're not going to go first 
and there's a benefit that comes with that. Now, this isn't through anybody that I'm talking to. This is my own personal opinion based on the way I see the timeline working out. I think the NHL bought itself a huge amount of crucial runway when they made it clear they were perfectly fine with a December start to next season. By making that clear, they bought themselves August, September, and part of October. Um, they don't necessarily need to push to get hockey on the ice in July, which my opinion is that's going to be too tight. So the way I see it is players coming back in, in late July, um, um, you know, quarantining, three-week training camp, and then you dive into games in late August, and you have games August, September, part of October, yeah, you know, you crown a champion in mid-October and then you've got a six-week runway depending on when you want to start in December. I think the further they push it, the better. The more chance they have for it to be safer. So there, there's a bunch of things you said there that I, I want to pick up on, but I don't want to lose what you said earlier about the idea that if a player tests positive, the NHL has to have a, a system whereby they can withstand that. Because if you're not resilient enough to withstand a single positive test or even two positive tests in the morning, what are you doing, right? Because it's going to get shut down. Um, yes. So with regard to that, one of the things that you tweeted out recently was uh, after talking to, uh, I, I believe it was a, a, a medical doctor you, you, you spoke to, um, potentially rule changes that the NHL could do to in increase its resiliency to this sort of thing. Um, uh, you you laid out a bunch of them, and, and obviously it was an extreme scenario that you laid out. Do you think we're going to see modified rules? Like, how, how much modification do you think is realistic? Well, included in that was a, was a quote from Bill Daly saying, yes. given the nature of our game, I, I don't think you know we would need to make significant changes. I'm, I'm not, that's not an exact quote, but that was his, yeah. his sense is that the way hockey's played, they're not going to have to make a lot of fundamental changes. So that's where the league is at. And understand, this was an infectious disease specialist, and the scope of the conversation was this. Get a scientist to look at the game of hockey and ask the question, if you wanted to safely play this in the middle of a pandemic, what are some of the things, no idea is too stupid, what are some of the things you'd look at changing? And when you get a scientist looking at the, at the game, they kind of, you know, they look at it in a unique way. So you can understand how a scientist would immediately say, well, is there a way to maybe not have everybody spitting everywhere all the time? Because, you know, because, you know, spitting, right? <laughs> yep. We all know, right? Probably not, no, probably not okay in that time. And then they say, well, face masks aren't realistic, but what about a bubble shield? Like I, you know, and what about a modified bubble shield to reduce the droplets? Okay, sure. Um, um, trying to avoid situations where players are face-to-face -face with opponents for prolonged periods. A three-second battle in a corner, an interaction, a hit, something like that, um, you know, not as much chance of spreading, but, you know, crossing sticks, going shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, and face-to-face -face as we see off of face-offs for 15 seconds, and then the center gets tossed, so now it's another 10 seconds. Um, you want to avoid those 20 to 30 second personal space violations where you're talking directly to one another. So can you back them off so they don't do that on face-offs like they do in, in the defensive and offensive zones, right? Because of the hash marks. So get rid of that. Probably don't want guys grabbing onto each other, swinging around, spitting and throwing punches and getting in each other's faces. And you probably don't want scrums after every whistle where a linesman and two players are going to be within eight inches of each other's faces for an entire game. So it's a scientist's view of the game and what potentially 
changes that could be made in a pandemic. Not all of it's realistic. I don't think, you know, I wonder about visors, depending on where the numbers are at and what that looks like and full face shields. I wonder about that. But I don't know that the players would go for something like that. John, I think you had a follow-up as well. <laughs> well, I've got about eight follow-ups, Al. So why, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask when, when you know, and I appreciate that. I thought that was a great tweet, and it really uh, got the conversation started and sent it in uh, some directions where people were like, "No," but but the, the general idea was this was a, a, a coming at it from a medical point of view, and and you know, cutting down on every possibility. Uh, and I thought the NHL handled it well by saying. You know, we won't have to alter the, the, the game too terribly much. But I, I wanted to... Right, because they've got their experts too, sure, right? That are exactly. advising them. Yeah. So so overseas, for instance, they just announced that there's no spitting allowed or kissing the soccer ball right. or exchanging of jerseys um, in a European soccer league that's about to start again. So, I mean, that's we could call that the Brad Marchand rule, I guess. But <laughs> the, 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 other, the other thing that, that pointed to, you know, when you were talking about timeline... Uh, I, I was I was interested in a couple of things. One was was your thought on whether or not we'll see an NHL draft in this window leading up to, and then secondly, the the process of the Europeans coming over and isolating. How close do you think we are to those things? I think the and again I I follow the reporting of of our insiders who do an excellent job on that. Um, so I, I wouldn't suggest that I've got information beyond what you guys have on that. I think the NHL has a clear stage one, two, three plan that they're trying to execute. It gets difficult, right? Because the border, like, you know, our federal government and the border, um, and I know that, that the prime minister has been asked about this, but it's it's a contentious issue, right? You start opening up the border for some people and not others, and people are wanting to do business, but you're not letting them, yet you're letting hockey players come in, and it's a contentious issue. So I think they would probably like to do it sooner rather than later, um, but again, there's, there's a number of different levels of government that are all going to weigh in on this. So, you know, I would think in an ideal world, they would have their players coming back to the cities that they're supposed to play in by, um, you know, early June. But the other issue guys is, you know, so the New York Rangers all go back to New York. Like when are they going to be allowed to get out there and practice in a group of six or 10 people, Never mind 25. Like, and, and there's an unfair competitive edge. And the National Hockey League wants no part of that. They don't want it to be where the Oilers, because they happen to be in Edmonton, where COVID numbers are, are reasonable, that they can get together and practice for two weeks on, as a group because those types of gatherings are allowed, but the New Jersey Devils and New York Rangers can't. So it's this sweet spot of trying to make it equal for everybody. And that's where some of the competitive difficulties come in. Well, I, I think the... Uh... I, yeah, it's it, it's a really good point you make with that, and I, I think that's one of the arguments for the for the hub city approach, especially if if teams aren't allowed to play in their home hub city, because then everybody's sort of on on evenish footing. Uh, that's a contentious one. <laughs> do, do you guys feel that that's the right way to go? I, I don't see what other practical alternative there is. Like you you can't play in New York right now, and the timeline's not no, going to no, be the but, same everywhere. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't mean the hub city idea. I mean the idea that the Edmonton Oilers would play in Buffalo. Well, frankly, I'm not in Edmonton if there are team games happening here in Edmonton. That is because I think it's on the table. I don't know how much traction it has, but that is a contentious one. 
Well, it's an unnecessary expense for the home team, but the problem is how else do you make it even? Because if you're the Oilers and all your guys get to, you know, be quarantined at home or whatever, you've got a big advantage on whoever's coming, you know, the players from Vancouver who all have to be cooped up in the hotel together, right? Like, I, I don't, unless you force the team locally to, to move into the hotel too, I, I don't see a way around it. And I wonder if the quarantine that they're envisioning needs to happen in the hub city. Or if players come back from overseas, quarantine in the cities that they're in, um, find a, uh, a safe way to get where they're going. And again, you've got you've got the, you know, you limit their exposure to everybody and anybody through private planes and such and take them right to the hotel. And they arrive already with that quarantine process finished. Every time I get into this conversation, I go, man, this this is it is beyond climbing Everest. There's so much going on. One of the things that I that I thought was interesting in the last couple of days, and I'd love you to comment on it, Ryan, is Vancouver. You know, they, the Abbotsford played there, the the Abbotsford Heat. They've got the Pacific Coliseum that is still used by, I believe, the junior team. They obviously have the uh, the big rink for the Canucks. There was a, a sense coming out of Calgary, or I'm sorry, Vancouver, that they could house you know, close to everything or at least half. And I wonder if, if as we go through this process where it ends up being maybe two cities instead of four. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my information was the Oilers felt they could do eight teams. Um, I pushed a little bit to, you know, to check and see if they felt they could do more. And the sense I got was that, yes, they felt they could do more. So let's say two cities and 12 teams. So again, this isn't from the league. This would be my view on it. I think there were a bunch of teams in on it. I'd be curious to know how long the list is now, if it's been cut down, how many teams still remain. I think the NHL needs to hedge its bets a little here, guys, because the variables are constantly changing. So let's say that they announce next week that it's Edmonton and Vancouver because the COVID numbers are good and because it just makes sense and you got to get a decision on paper. So, Or let's say Edmonton and Toronto, right? Boom. Well, there's a lot of runway between now and puck drop. And what happens if the numbers go the wrong way in one of those two cities? All of your eggs are sitting in that basket and you got a regional health authority who says, we're sorry, but we, we have no choice. We have to put public health and safety because there's so much talk about a second wave. As, as each of these regions start to open up a little bit more and a little bit more, you hope that the numbers stay flat and that it's all good. But conventional wisdom is you're probably going to see a bit of a regression and if the NHL narrows it down to too few cities too quickly and all their eggs are in that basket, what are they exposing themselves to? As opposed to keeping three or four cities in the mix and a good possibility, and if you got to adjust on the fly, then you do. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. You you, you can't go to two cities. I, I, I think you need four at a minimum, and I think you need at least three of those four cities to be able to, to handle eight teams in the event that, uh, that the scenario you outlined just comes to pass. Um, something I want to ask your opinion on, because I, I've been wondering about this. When you laid out the timelines, realistically, this is the off season, right? Um, and if you're going to have a training camp before the the nineteen twenty season resumes, is there a reason why we shouldn't be treating this like the off season? Um, and and what I mean by that is not just the draft, but letting teams make trades, letting teams do more or less all the things they do in a standard off season, and then. You know, you're restarting the season in, in late August, but uh, you're going into training camp with basically a fresh crew. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I think the 
you think there's going to be an asterisk beside the Stanley Cup now <laughs> if they just push through a regular playoff? All of a sudden having a draft and another trade deadline and allowing teams to adjust their rosters again to that extent, you know, after they're this deep into the season. And I mean, the way that absolutely decimates the continuity and the integrity of an NHL season makes zero sense to me. That, that to me, it's like, and this is what I'm having such a difficult time with on the draft. And this is just my opinion, and I understand why the NHL would like to get it done. You are messing with the strategy of a hockey season so dramatically by having the draft before the season's over. And not just this season's strategy, for some teams, potentially the next two seasons. Teams went into the trade deadline this year absolutely considering their strategy for the draft coming up. Yeah. Saying, yes, let's get that extra second round pick because at the draft, we're going to turn that into a second liner that can actually help us next season. You're changing the rules on these guys halfway through a year when their strategies are already well underway. And I guess there's a lot of things we can't control right now. There's a lot of things that are just going to have to change because we have no choice. That doesn't feel like one of them. feels like there is a choice. Why so fundamentally mess with the strategy that these teams are employing if you don't absolutely have to. As as the teams stand now, based on the deadline and all of those other things, uh, I feel like the Oilers, a young team, uh, Mike Green coming back, uh, they'll have the kind of depth that, that maybe they didn't have in the beginning of the year. Ken Holland was very active at the deadline, and we've seen some, some nice recalls. I like this. I'm not saying they're going to win the Stanley Cup. I, I like the Oilers and where they're situated with this team. Do you agree? Do you mean for this season? Yeah, for the playoffs. And the rest of the season, or do you mean moving for forward? For the playoffs, for the 2019-20 yeah. playoffs. Like I, I think that well, this, this could be a blessing in a way. They're young, they're talented, and all of the bets they made, like Mike Green, are going to be healthy. Yeah, I think everybody's going to benefit from a healthier roster. As they roll towards the playoffs, I like the way it was setting up for them. But I think one of the issues is, you know, for the Oilers, a lot of what was creating such great success for them this year are intangibles. Not, not really intangibles, but they're, they're kind of some of those voodoo type things, right? So, for instance, two years ago, the Oilers had basically the same five players on their power play that they have this year. And they were historically one of the worst the organization's ever seen. Fast forward two years, and it's one of the best the organization has ever seen. So what's changed? Some coaching and some strategy for sure. My point is, it's kind of voodoo sometimes, isn't it? And what's the guarantee after two months off, the Oilers are going to pick up and the same qualities that put them where they are are just going to be there again. That Koskinen's going to do what he was doing. Smith's going to do what he was doing. And the power play and the penalty killer just going to pick right up where they left off as though two months off or three or four months off would have no effect on the trends of those statistical categories. So I liked where they were trending, and if everything kicks into gear again the way it was, then yes. But is it a guarantee it's going to? <laughs> well, I don't think we have any guarantees at this stage. I, I you know what I mean, though, John? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. like, I mean, a team can go from being one of the best power plays in the league, you know, in the playoffs, to all of a sudden really struggling for some reason to start the next year after the offseason. That happens all the time. So that was one of their biggest weapons this year. I, I think that, to me, it's sort of equal parts advantage and disadvantage, because you're right. 
you know, special teams move around a bunch. You don't know what they're going to look like when they come back, especially if they tweak with personnel a little bit because they're, you know, you suddenly you maybe you're using a, a Tyler Green or, or sorry, a Mike Green or a Tyler Ennis more in a specific situation than you were before or Andreas Athanasiu because you have this opportunity to have a mini camp now. But I, I think like I, I kind of look at it from the opposite perspective where because the Oilers were one of those teams that were very active in terms of bodies at the trade deadline, um, like we saw guys like Ennis, guys like Athanasiu sort of struggle a little bit, I think, to find roles initially. And now I think that disadvantage disappears. Um, and, and, and with regard to the power play, like, I, you know, I don't want to dump on Todd McClellan here, but I, I think when you look at the special team's performance the last few years, they've They've underachieved, especially on the penalty kill, to some degree on the power play relative to the skill they have. So I, maybe it's less of a concern for for me than than you've outlined. But I mean, the case you've laid out is is very uh, it's a, it's a good argument and very plausible as well. Yeah, and I I mean I wouldn't be at all surprised if the orders came back in there. I mean, look at who they have on their power play. There's a reason why <laughs> it is as good as it is. But at the same time, if they came back and 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 struggled on the power play and they just kind of weren't going in. Wouldn't we all be looking at each other going, that's hockey. Yeah. I mean, that happens. Absolutely. Like, it's kind of voodoo. And and that's why losing the momentum of all the things that were going so well for them it has to be tough for that group because they had a lot of good things going on. And and you'd assume that, that they'd be able to get most of it back, but who knows? Ryan, you talked about the, the, the structure of an offseason and the plans for a team. One of the, the questions that, that – uh, we have moving forward is is the the ufas uh, uh, riley shahan uh, mike smith mike green uh, these are players who ordinarily now they'd be writing a, a second chapter and, and maybe improving their chances of signing uh, with the hockey club for the following year or or getting more money in free agency do you have a sense of where the oilers are are at say with a mike smith uh, or a riley shahan i think they are if you look at the signings that they were comfortable going ahead and doing in this environment, in this COVID environment, in this uncertain economic future, um, they were pretty low-level, low-money signings, right? They were not not big deals. And I think there's so much uncertainty, guys. Like, look, I don't know exactly what the number is, but let's call it a billion dollars that the league's got to figure out here between the league and the players that they came up shy this year. Um, you know, and that's got to be shared. And they're going to do what they can to make up some some of that money, but it's got to come from somewhere. And so a flat cap is an absolute best case scenario. I just think you're going to see teams and teams like the Oilers, who had to be careful anyways, really err on the. And, and I think they know other teams are going to be careful too. So as difficult as it might be to let some guys get out into that free agent period, I think there's an understanding that a lot of other teams are going to be forced to do the same thing. And there may be a, a nice availability of other guys. So if it's anything more than a two and a half million dollar deal on a shorter term, I just don't know there's a comfort level with the landscape to go out and execute those types of deals right now. And I think, you know, Ethan Bear might be a good example of that. You, you mentioned Bear, and he, he's one of the two RFAs I was really wanting to ask you about. Um, I, this, so this is a bit of a difficult question, but you mentioned that two and a half million dollar mark. So Andreas Athanasiu. He's a restricted free agent. He's got one year of team control left. I, I believe it's a $3 million um, flat qualifying offer to keep him. 
and that might be tight. And and you and because we don't know what what they have with Athanasiu yet, it's it's even more difficult. Um, before all this happened, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe they do a a two year bridge, uh, you know, by one year free agency. And now I look at it and I go, are they going to be able to do anything more than a one-year $3 million offer? And and are they even going to be able to do that? Do you think that's the most likely outcome with, with Athanasiu right now? Yeah. Yeah, it may be. I mean, I think they're still, you know, they didn't trade for him to, to have him move on right away. They traded for him with an eye on him potentially being the answer on the wing that, that so many people, and you guys included, talked about all year, been needing a skilled player that could contribute on the wing in the top six, right? They, they traded for him for that reason and gave up those assets. So he's got to be in the plans moving forward, despite this financial shakeup that's happening. Ethan Bear, same thing. I mean, you know, the question the owners had to ask themselves before all this happened was, are you willing to bet on him? And how much are you willing to bet on him? Because if you're willing to bet on this guy and you believe on in him, can you get him done to an Oscar Clefbaum-looking contract? You know, and we all know how Clefbaum's deal looks right now. Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. I would bet on Ethan Bear on a long-term deal uh, if the money on a longer-term deal was reasonable, but I don't know that I'd do it right now because I just don't know what the situation is going to look like in the next couple of years. So Athanasio has to be in the plans, um, and Ethan Bear will be too, but they just might not be able to place the same types of bets that maybe they would have hoped to with, with numbers that start with three and fours. Ryan, I felt one of the reasons the Athanasiu trade might make sense for Ken Holland is he was giving up draft picks that he might be able to get back. Uh, yes, Apolliarvi's mentioned often, maybe Matt Benning. I'm not sure uh, what would have value uh, on the draft floor for, for other NHL teams. Uh, one of the things that really rings true when you talk about not having the draft in June for for Edmonton specifically is the fact that they they might want to trade back into the say forty to seventy range uh, at the draft. Do you, if it ends up happening in the off season when everything is is done in a, a more traditional manner, do you see Holland being active in in trying to acquire picks, or is that uh, is that something that's too far away to even contemplate? No, it's not too far away to contemplate. And I think um, I think the owners feel they need to add more quality forwards to their organization. Uh, and that the opportunity to pick somewhere in the first round, uh, you know, for a player that they believe in, um, I know there's a real desire to add skill up front and, and add the right players up front. So a lot of it depends on when they land in, in their draft spot, whatever it ends up being. Um, that they, how they feel about whoever's available. And if they feel like based on who's available, they can safely trade back and still add a quality piece, then I think we could see them do it. But I do know that, that the opportunity to pick a first round pick in a player that they believe can play, uh, and particularly a forward to add to their ranks, I think they see that as pretty valuable. And I don't know that they're you know, a lot of times you get that philosophy, well, if you're picking 24, 25, or 22, whatever it is, trade that and get two shots at it in the second and early third round. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad idea, but a lot, it depends on what your scouts are telling you sitting at the table right there going, no, we believe if you just go ahead and pull the trigger on that guy, it gives us our best chance. We'd rather take that guy than, you know, two shots at it in the next round. So we've talked a little bit about... Um 
adding talented forwards. We've talked a little bit about the Oilers' comfort with cheap deals. Uh, one player who maybe fits both boxes to some degree is Tyler Ennis. I, I don't know if you have a sense of what, like, I don't think anybody really has a sense of what he can command in free agency at this point, but could he be a guy that maybe they look at on a on a short-term deal in an environment where they don't have a lot of money to spend and, and say, you know, this isn't a perfect fit, but it's a, it's a good stopgap for us right now? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Tyler Ennis brings a couple things that we know the team is looking for. So <clears throat> he's a veteran and he can move around, play different positions, which is good. Uh, he can spend time in your top six and make plays with skilled players, not have the puck dying on his stick all the time. He can do that. If you want to play him in your bottom six, uh, he increases the speed in your bottom six. He's a, he moves well out there still. Uh, and he's got lots of experience. I think he's well-liked in the room. So he checks a lot of boxes, actually. Uh, and not the perfect player, but for the money that you're going to spend, you're, you're not getting the perfect player. <laughs> I think he's shown himself to be a good fit and developed some early chemistry with some pretty important guys. Uh, so, yeah, would be the answer to that. Now, I, I don't know what the number looks like. Um, I don't know that it would be uh, – yeah, I don't know that it would be a, a massive raise on where he's at right now. Ryan, one of my, my favorite uh, parts of the year is, is usually involves you near a snowbank at the trade deadline talking about the orders making a move. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wanted to, to kind of bridge into the idea of the actual broadcast, whether it be the, the rights holders or, or those covering the team. I'm not sure that we'll, you know, how the broadcast will work, whether there'll be, uh, uh, you know, actual uh, uh, play-by-play and color uh, at the rink, whether there'll be somebody between the two um, uh, teams seems unlikely. Uh, Cameramen obviously would, I think, have to go in. But uh, any thought on how the NHL will hire the broadcast portion, radio and television, and and those covering it uh, who are not the rights holders, uh, any thought on, on how that may change your life in terms of covering the team? So do you mean uh, outside of the ones that will be working on the actual broadcast themselves? Yeah, like, well, either or. I, I think that, you know. Yeah, either or. So Frank Cervalli wrote an article on this a little while ago um, talking with Paul Graham, one of our executives that works on the, the production side and a lot of our NHL broadcasts. And I think a lot of good points in there. Um, you know, cameramen can kind of get into the building, not really have to be anywhere near the, where the players would be. They walk in the building, go sit at their camera, exit the building and go home. Um, so I don't know that when we're talking about this super bubble, that all of the entirety of the broadcast crews need to be part of this super bubble. That's getting more, you know, bigger and more expensive at all, all the time. I think normally on a television broadcast, you have a home truck and an away truck. You could probably get away with just doing one, creating like a, a world feed type scenario where everybody takes it. And then maybe they could add their own graphics packages on. If you're NESN, you would add your own graphics packages on and maybe you have your own play-by-play and color guys calling it off a monitor somewhere. Um, to, so that it still feels like, you know, as, as we watch games on Sportsnet, those would still feel like you're watching the same broadcasts. So I, I don't know that from a number standpoint, there's a significant need to like pair it way, way, way back other than just the one truck instead of two. As for me, and trust me, it's a question my wife and I, my wife Randina and I talk about all the time. Uh, am I in the bubble? <laughs> am I going into this bubble? I don't know. Like, am I gone for eight weeks? Do I get to be part of the bubble? Do I want to be part of the bubble? Al, are you part of the bubble? Um, I don't know the answer yet. I'd like to know what Randine thinks about you being in the bubble. 
<laughs> well, there's some days where I think she can't get me in that bubble fast enough. <laughs> Isn't it about time for you to go quarantined? <laughs> Man, I do never want to give my wife that option. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. We we've taken a little more of your time than we than we should have, but uh, we we we're, these are really important questions. And thanks so much for for dropping by and uh, informing us on these uh, big issues. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to do it, guys. Um, love that the the podcast is up and running, and uh, appreciate you having me on. I'll, I'll love to come back sometime. Definitely. Thanks, Ryan. That's Ryan Rashog, TSN Edmonton Bureau reporter. Uh, a lot to unpack there, John. That was an interesting conversation. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm looking at at some of my notes from this this chat here, and there's we covered a lot of ground. I, I think he had a, a pretty sensible view on, on the free agents where, where the Oilers are in terms of off season planning and what they might do. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing to me was the uh, playing out the scenario where, where a player tests positive the morning of the game. And, and I think Ryan's point about needing to be able to withstand that and, and needing to have a plan and be able you know, so the whole league doesn't grind to a halt based on one test I, I think that really nicely encapsulates the challenge that the NHL faces as they try to get back to, to playing regular season hockey. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the, the, more, I, the more I think about this, I, the more I believe that the, the bubble that we talked about is necessary. And that may mean, I'm sorry to say this, but it may mean 16 instead of 24 teams and no regular season games. Because I think you got to blow through this in a quick as, as quick a time as you can because you, you've quarantined you know, players uh, basically away from from their lifestyles, uh, the the entire process has is you know fraught with at least some danger. And you know if if you add in regular season games and twenty four teams, uh, you're 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 really kind of pushing uh, your luck a little bit. I I'm fascinated to see as this thing rolls out. I'm always hopeful that we'll find some kind of uh, medical or scientific solution for it, but. Uh, my goodness, when you run through all of the, the hurdles that are being jumped over here, it shows you the kind of dedication the NHL clearly has to playing games. They want this, John. <laughs> I don't think there's any question about that. And I think they'd, uh, you, know, you know, there's not a financial incentive for fans, but I, I, I think everybody wants to see hockey come back. Um, I just want to touch on, on one thing you said. The more I think about this, and my, my viewpoint has evolved over time, the more I like the idea of just going to a 16-team playoffs right away with a, a handful of exhibition games out of the gate. Um, you know, that's a, that's a little unfair to teams on the bubble, but what people with teams inside the top 16 will tell you is any other system's also unfair if you happen to be in a playoff spot because why should you suddenly have to play an extra round or or you know have a have a, a playoffs with 24 teams when when you earned your top 16 spot on merit over a 70 odd game regular season so there's no way to be perfectly fair and in terms of handling COVID I, I think the best way to do it is to to have a normal playoff field and uh, and and treat it like that and and just scrap the remainder of the regular season. By the way, Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada is Ken Weeb and Murata Tesh's guest on the boarding pass this week at The Athletic. Check that out. Before we run, though, I wanted to, I have not read it yet, but the the reaction online to Daniel Nugent Bowman's interview with Alish Hemsky, uh, the article is up today at The Athletic. Uh, I, I'm going to read it as soon as we're done here, but I know you have read it. Uh, Alish Hemsky, uh, well-loved former Edmonton Oiler uh, and, uh, you know, somebody who hasn't, really been interviewed a lot lately or even when he was here so it was I, i'm sure the the interview was a lot of fun to read 
it's it's really good. I I enjoyed it. Um, he he gives an honest perspective on which Calgary Flames defenseman he hates the most, and it's not <laughs> the guy you're thinking of, which you know is astonishing to me. I, I was I wasn't surprised, but I was a little surprised because I uh, Daniel asked him about Robin Regeer and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, and I, I think the biggest thing I came away with was I, I'm just happy. It sounds like he's he's finally getting healthy after uh, a difficult couple of seasons. Yeah, for sure. Uh, check out our new comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Say hello. Let us know how we're doing, what you want to hear, what guests you might like to have us on in the future. Uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe the oil can on Apple. If you click on the URL, theathletic.com slash the oil can, you get 40% off your subscription. For Jonathan Willis and Ryan Rashog, I'm Alan Mitchell. Thank you for tuning in to the oil can podcast today. Oh,